Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Danny, Hello, Matt. How are you, mate? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right, mate. I want to say thank you so much for doing this again. You're an absolute gent. Don't worry, pleasure. You had a nightmare with your laptop, didn't you? A nightmare. Yeah, the less said about that, the better. We'll we'll move swiftly on. <laughs> yeah. um, life's good, though. I'm organising a Halloween party for, for Halloween weekend, and I'm going to have my first DJ gig in, God, like eight months. So I'm excited oh, about that. Looking forward to that. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. It must have been amazing for you. I gather you very recently finished shooting Series 2 of, of Code 4. So, I mean, it must have been, A, not only amazing to get back to doing what you love, but obviously working on a pro- project like that with someone like Steve, it looks like you two have more fun than should be legally allowed on set making that. Is that the case? Yeah, there's. Um, we got sent the uh, outtakes reel that... Um, they compiled for series two. Uh, I don't know if you ever got round to seeing the reel from the first series, but um, yeah, it's even funnier. Where can you view that? Is that just on YouTube? Um, I think it is on YouTube. I think Skylight, you know, officially sort of released it in the run up to the launch of the TV show. But um, yeah, no, it's great to get the opportunity to um, 
work with Steve Graham on, on Code 404 is an absolute joy and all the other actors as well. We've got Anna Maxwell Martin in there and Richard Gadd. And oh, you've got Steve Oram from Sightseers, who's just Steve, so dry. Steve Oram's in there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and who's the lady that was in Vera Drake with you? Rosie, um, she's in Green Wing and Peep yeah. Show and... Rosie Cavaliero, who plays Dennett, our boss. She and is amazing in the show. Yeah, she just has us in absolute hysterics. And so, the, I mean, the level of corpsing that goes on is um, is next level. But it's great when you have that sort of buzz on set like that. And we are led brilliantly by our extraordinary director, Al, Al Campbell, who has got an amazing track record in comedy. Um, and it's just a great team. You know, we obviously went back to shoot it in COVID times. But I think once we got over that sort of first week and we've all kind of got used to it, we adapted really well. And, you know, because lots of the actors and the crew hadn't sort of worked for seven months. Or, I mean, I hadn't done any acting for seven months. So I was a bit ring rusty. But once we got our groove on, we were just loving it. And I think we've produced a really um, even more ambitious and funnier and more engaging second series. So... Yeah, we're buzzing about it. How would you describe that show to anybody who's not seen it? It's available. <clears throat> it's available on Now TV. Um, I've seen the whole of series one. I absolutely loved it. I think you two together just make such a great <laughs> double act. Stephen's kind of the straight guy, but he's still also yeah. very funny. But you in this are just hysterical, mate. How would you describe yeah, we, the premise? We always described it as uh, the love child of RoboCop and some mothers do have them. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. That is the best like synopsis I think yeah. anybody could come up with. Get out of the park with that description, haven't we? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, you know, it, he's the best cop in the unit. It's set in the near future and he gets gunned down at the beginning. But because his stats are so good, you know, he's got the best arrest record in the in the unit that they decide to then bring him back from the dead. So he's part man, part AI, but the sort of wiring's all wrong. So it becomes a sort of comedy of errors with him kicking down the wrong doors and arresting the wrong people and just basically screwing the whole thing up. But be, and but in the time it's taken, it's taken him a year to come back. But in that time, um, Roy uh, Stevens' character has sort of fallen head over heels in love with my wife and it played by Anna Maxwell Martin. Yep. And so there's a kind of like... Um, <laughs> love triangle thing going on there's a conspiracy thriller that runs all the way through it so um right we it is slapstick it gets very silly it's very you know, high got, budget as well isn't it like the production yeah, value yeah, of it yeah, is very yeah. slick yeah it's kudos is behind it and water and power productions and you know it, it look it kind of like starts like an episode of line of duty you know the production values in it are really yep. high and so but like i was saying when you get really great actors in it as well that are predominantly probably known more for their dramatic acting with me, Stephen and, and Anna particularly, it, you know, it does bed it down in sort of a, a truth and a reality. But of course, then it goes completely off the wall into slapstick. So there's a lot of, there's a blend of so much going on in there that um, it's just an absolute joy to perform. Yeah, and it just looks like you have such a good time making it. Like you can just tell sometimes when you're watching a film or a TV show or you know a stage production, whatever it is, you're like, it, yeah. it is clearly obvious that these actors are relishing every second of this, and that just yeah, makes and it all I, the more I, enjoyable for the audience, doesn't it? 
I think so, and I think particularly we we relished it even more second time around. Because, I'll bet, of course, yeah. You know, you know, you know, you never know how these shows are going to land with an audience, but you know, it was Sky's most successful comedy in eight years, and oh wow, it, it sort of the buzz on social media and everything, and the amount of people that watched it was phenomenal, really. So. That gives us a confidence. We know the characters a lot more. And there was, you know, we were able to risk a little bit with it. We were sort of ad-libbing a lot more this time round. And that can only, I mean, what it is all about is just giving Al the director choices when he gets to the edit. Do you know what I mean? So I think much more this time around, we would sort of, let's do one really silly one, really straight one. And just to give the director choice at the end of the day. So and like I said, it's it's there's much there's there's bigger stunts in it. There's it's, there's just more ambition behind it. And I think the fact that we've been able to achieve that during a, a sort of global pandemic is just testament to how hard and brilliant everyone is. Um, not how hard they are. <laughs> they're well hard. How hard working they are. Yeah. The crew is nails. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's great. It was just an absolute treat from start to finish, really. Well, I don't want to linger on it too much, but I am interested to pick your brain just about the, the realities of what it's like on set now in this kind of, well, not even post-COVID world. We're in COVID. What's it like on yeah. set? Like, what difficulties do those restrictions present you as actors and then, you know, the crew as technicians and, and craftsmen? Um, I was, because I'm, uh, presently I'm filming the second series of Temple, the show I shoot with Mark Strong. Yeah. Um. And I was having a great discussion with James, our first AD. And I think really when it comes to prepping these shows, that's really where the difficulty lies. Do you know what I mean? It, it falls on the shoulders a lot more for the execs and the producers and the crew in leading in the pre, pre-production. Um, that takes kind of like, I think, twice as long. Um, but hopefully when you get to actually filming it, I think... In many respects, it feels the same. You are, the biggest difference is the fact that the whole crew are in masks and PPE and the actors have to wear masks to and from set. And I mean, for instance, with Temple, we've all got our own individual tents that we have to sort of stay in. So, Right, like your own little respects, bubbles on set, almost. Yeah, yeah. So, listen, there's, de- there's a definite sort of different energy with it. But... Um, in terms of when it comes to playing the scenes and finding the reality of the scenes and doing your job, basically, that pretty much feels ex- exactly the same because that was my biggest concern, you know, where, you know, when it gets to if you're doing intimate scenes or fight scenes and things like that, I'll are, bet, are yeah. the COVID restrictions going to hamper that? And I think the fact is that when everyone is being, you know, COVID tested twice a week, um, there's a sort of security in that and you're able just to go onto set and, and, and do your thing. I think the biggest sacrifice, it has to be said in terms of the actors is away from the, the set. You know, when it comes down to what you're doing in your downtime, be it on a weekend, I mean, in no uncertain terms, you can't go to restaurants. You have to avoid track and trace in closed spaces. Um, pretty much how lots of people are living their lives at the moment. So you just have to be doubly aware away from set in order to not jeopardise the production as a whole. So in terms of what the actors actors are sacrificing, and indeed the crew, it, it's a, it's a huge deal, really. So 
Yeah, nobody wants to, to be the person to shut down the the production, do they? No, I mean, you know, if I sat in a restaurant and I've given my details over and I, you know, there's a complete stranger in the corner of the restaurant who gets COVID and I get contacted through Track and Trace, that person may be the reason why we have to shut down for two weeks. Yeah. I mean, you'd never forgive yourself. So um, it's trying testing times. Um, but in order to get these shows made, you have to go through that process. Because at the end of the day, you know, there's we're running out of content and, there are, I think somebody said to me, there's like literally like 10 productions shooting at the moment in London, which is uh, not that many at all. So um, it's a huge effort for all concerned. Yeah, I guess I, I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but the, there has to come a time if, you know, production doesn't get ramped up that we do get to a point where it's just reruns and there's nothing new being made. Yeah, which would be yeah a, you'll be watching reruns thought. of... Yeah, of all creatures, great and small, or darling buds and made forevermore. So it's um, it's a giant, it's a ginormous effort for everyone, really. Um, but I feel blessed and thankful that you know that I'm actually back working because there's a hell of a load of actors that aren't, and um, uh, it's, I'm just sort of blessed that both Code Four Hundred Four and Temple have both been recommissioned and were able to go back to work. Um, well, gratitude, gratitude and luck and good fortune is a big part of that. But if you know, if I can say so objectively, looking at the history of your career, you've never really not worked. It seems like you've always consistently been either in films or in TV shows or on the stage. And it seems like there's a really rich yeah. variety of work over the years. And particularly recently, COVID aside, you've been on a hot streak, my friend. Haven't you? Yeah, I, up until <laughs> lockdown, I did have a ridiculous run of work. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about Des. Huge, huge success. 10 million viewers. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Talk to me about the part when you were offered it and you read the script. What was your reaction? Because it's, it's an amazing role. It's obviously a very dark, compelling, just amazing drama. What was your reaction when you got sent that and were offered the part? I literally got an email from my agent. I was on a night shoot. Uh, filming White Lines out in uh, Mallorca. And then um, it's just one of those dream emails that you open that says, you know, it's the star opposite David Tennant. It's a three-parter for ITV and it's the story of Dennis Nilsson and your cast. Uh, you've been offered the role of DCI Peter J, the uh, detective responsible for his conviction. So it was, a, I mean, as soon as I read that on the email, I was like, Whoa. <laughs> I pretty much don't have to read the script. So I'm, I'm sort of already in. But I mean, it was a fantastic script from Luke Neal. I thought it was, you know, there was it wasn't gratuitous. There was no killing. We weren't sensationalizing Dennis Nilsson in any way. Would you mind just yeah. giving us a very brief description of who he was? Because he's obviously a real life yeah. Um, killer. So, yeah, Dennis Nilsson was one of Britain's most notorious serial killers. He went on a killing spree uh, in the late 80s from 1978. Um, so he was he was caught in uh, 1983, and he uh, killed lots of young homeless uh, vagrants, some gay men, um, and he basically went on a killing spree for four and a half years. He was at a property in Melrose Avenue, and then moved to a property in Muswell Hill called Cranley Gardens, and was eventually caught because um, he didn't have any outside space to dispose of the body, so he would dissect the bodies and flush the body parts down his lavatory, which obviously clogged up the drains. Um, 
the Dino Rog guy found that out. And then obviously the police were called and Peter Jay, along with his constable, Steve McCusker, uh, was summoned to uh, Cranley Gardens and waited for him all day. And, and if you've seen the show, that the, the beginning of Dez is pretty much exactly how it happened. Yeah. They waited for him all day. He, he worked in Kentish Town in the jobs job centre and then um, they opened the door and they went up to his flat and the stench of death hit them immediately and and he doesn't Peter deny J. it for a second does he that's why it's so unsettling is he just is like yeah you got me no. bang to rights um, what do you want to know then do you want to know why I did it yeah he almost plays it out like he, a game of chess doesn't he well I think I mean the, the script is heavily based upon Brian Masters amazing uh, book Killing for Company right Brian Masters is played by Jason Watkins in 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 our show, but um, I mean I advise anyone to read that book. It's a phenomenal piece of writing. But um, when you read that, I mean in many respects, Dennis Nielsen, in a way, sort of wanted to be caught. He was the guy that actually phoned up the landlord and complained about the drains, which seems absolutely bonkers. Really, I mean the whole thing is mind-boggling. It's yeah. unfathomable, like what he actually did. Um, and why he did it, but, what was like the driving And why he did it. And I, I think that's what's so great about the show is that it isn't, as I said, it's not gratuitous. It's a, lot, it's a much more psychological investigation into why he did it and how he became who who he was, you know what I mean? So it's, um, and it offered three amazing lead performances for me, Jason and, and, and David, you know, and I think... Um, All of you are just superb it, in it. So, so, so good. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd worked with Jason years ago on a show called Funland, and I had a cough and a spit in Good Omens. Along, I'd one scene with David Tennant and that, but you know, all that you know, when you compare it to Des, when we really got these fantastic um, scenes to play across from one another, and um, I mean, I hadn't watched it for a while, and I sat down with my son Milo, um, who's fourteen, and we actually sat down and watched it, and I was. You know, some of those scenes, um, the length of the scenes, the intricacy of the scenes, and to get to work opposite two actors like that was just unbelievable, really. And not just those two, it was the whole cast was filled with a wealth of brilliant acting talent in Ron Cook, Barry Wald, Jay Simpson. You know, we were blessed to work with some amazing uh, actors. So, and the way it's been received and the audience figures for ITV. You know, it's a bona fide uh, hit for them, and that's that's just I'm so pleased for them. Actually, yeah, it's, it's very gratifying. How was it really, kind of doing that dance with David Tennant? And was he kind of isolated on set when you weren't, you know, in the scene? Was he keeping himself to yeah. himself and trying to remain uh, that kind of, you know, yeah, elusive yeah. figure to fit in with the role? To, to a degree, I mean, I I had because I've worked with some of the actors playing the police before. Um, but we bonded, you know, we, we went right, on a yeah. long drinking session before we started filming. And that's those the job days were, yeah, yeah. When you're <laughs> able to go to a pub with a group of people, um, we had a gr- great night out. So the, all of the coppers, and I love the fact that when you watch that, that camaraderie really comes across with all of the police. So we had a lot of um, banter going on set, as you could probably imagine with, tough subject matter like that you need to keep a degree of levity with it i was, I was I, going to ask know, is that how you do that balancing act because you really just try in uh, the minute you stop rolling let your hair down yeah, and, and have a I laugh think, and break that tension 
Yeah, yeah, because, you know, when it had to be serious, it really was. I mean, when you take, for example, the interrogation scene in the first episode, you know, it was clear then when David steps on set, he's in his costume, he physically resembled him so well. But what he did more than anything I can remember was just the complete and utter embodiment of that role. You know, I've seen footage of the real Nielsen. There's there's so many documentaries you can watch and ITV gave us all those. And I just thought it was an absolute masterclass. I mean, I've, I've been in scenes with actors before where you kind of, you know, they, they've shot on you first and you've delivered your performance and then you turn around and you're basically just giving offline. And uh, it happened to me once before with Ben Wishaw on stage when we were doing Mojo, where you feel yourself just... He's so great as well. I love him. Yeah, but they're they're so amazing and they're so in the moment. And David Tennant had that in that performance as well. And I can remember just giving him these lines thinking, this is just an absolutely spellbinding, sort of eerie, but utterly captivating performance. So, um, I mean, both Jason and David are absolutely at the top of their game and masters of their craft. So it's just, you know, it's great to work with actors like that. It's great to act across from amazing performances like that because you know you you are just naturally forced to raise raise your game and I mean it was a wonderful character Peter Jay and he was always described to me by our brilliant director Lewis Arnold as the heart and soul of the piece you know he is the person that very much is at the heart of finding the identities of the victim of securing justice for those victims and their extended families do you know what I mean it was all about getting closure for the families and that's what Peter J went through in reality and the fact that halfway through because of the how much it was costing and how difficult the case was and how emotionally draining it was the fact that they had to sort of close it down after only six victims was you know it's heartbreaking for Peter and his team because it was a six month investigation you know it took a hell of a lot out of them there was no counselling in the early 80s for police at that time and when you consider the the content of what they were dealing with, the subject matter, the you know, and Peter described it as he'd never encountered evil like that before. He was an inexperienced policeman. He dealt with serious crime. He dealt with murder cases, but nothing could prepare him for what what was waiting for them really when they went there to Cranley Gardens. And it's um, I had to somehow embody that in the performance. And what is great for me because I, I, you know, we've spoken about Code 404, we touched upon White Lines and even Temple to a certain degree, all those characters are quite sort of extrovert. You know, they're either comedic or they're having tantrums or they're, you know, they, they lose their temper. And so they're sort of big performances. With Peter J, it was really great to sort of flip all of that on its head and play this really sort of insular, deep feeling detective do you know what I mean and I in many respects a lot of those emotions is just played across my face and it was about being very nuanced and minimal with it which is probably not what people associate with me so much um so it was great to play in a different area totally yeah well, you did a fantastic job. And one of my favorite scenes in the whole three episodes is the scene with Chanel Creswell, who people will know from This Is England. I think one of the yeah, most yeah. underrated actresses in the country. And there's that scene mm. with her and she, you know, she wants the truth and she wants justice for, you know, the person that she loves and she's in pain. And she kind of says to you, doesn't she, uh, you know, you don't really care about us, about the victims. All you care about is that you're the people that that caught him. And that's a heartbreaking yeah. scene. So good. And you're both just yeah, like, I mean, incredible, isn't it? It's, 
it's funny you mentioned that scene, Matt, because somebody asked me today what's my favourite scene in it, and um, I mean, I adored the scenes with Jason Watkins in the pub scenes I had with him, and of course the interrogation scene with David. But I think you know it was the whole point of Des was to illustrate the human cost of Dennis Nilsson. And I think Chanel, more than any of the other actors in it, really epitomised that heartbreak and the actual terror that they must have gone through. Absolutely. And it's a lovely scene in the in the final uh, episode where it's during the court case. And she does. She says she's, she's an absolute phenomenal actor. And she absolutely nailed it when she turned around and said, all you care about that you're the guys that caught Dennis Nilsson. And, and I have to, Peter had to say sorry and I think in that one moment, you can feel the weight upon his shoulders and the cost of what this case has taken out of him. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, in, in reality, he left the police force two years after the Nielsen case and became a private investigator. But I think he definitely got sick of the bureaucracy of the Metropolitan Police. I think he probably thought that he could never top the Nielsen case. And it, and it definitely left a sort of indelible mark on him. And I think hopefully by the end of the programme, you kind of, you can get that from him, really, from the performance. As you say as well, in the 80s, not only was counselling not offered, but mental health wasn't even really recognised still at that point, was it? So it was just like you're expected to just process this and that kind of British attitude of, you know, keep calm, carry on kind of thing, isn't it? And and forget yeah. about the, the emotional damage and baggage that that leaves you with. As an actor, as a performer, as a creative, when you're getting into that subject matter, how do you come down from that? and readjust to like, oh, I've you know, finished work now. Do you instantly sw- like switch out of it, or do you carry it with you for a bit? What's your process of I, like taking that robe off at the end of it, as it were? It, it depends on what the role is. It, it, it depends on, um, you know, some performances and characters affect you more than others. I mean... What's been the like one that's Des, affected you the most, Danny? Would you say that well, I one? Definitely, I, I definitely had... Um, a couple of nightmares when I was doing the research for Des because I was poring over the documentaries. I read Killing for Company. I went and met Peter's widow, Linda, and his son, Simon. And they did say, you know, like, Peter was really good at leaving his job, you know, in the office. But the Nielsen case certainly affected him. But I, I, I woke my wife up on two occasions because I thought I was locked in an attic with, with Dennis Nielsen. So, and it happened twice. So that was a bit weird. But it's, it depends, like, you know, it's, it's a really heavy subject matter. I think the ones that have really stayed with me, I think Ronnie Biggs was something that really stayed with me, uh, Mrs. Biggs, that I did with Sheridan Smith, because lots of people think, well, he was such a happy-go-lucky, charming character. But that was, um, it was such a tragic end to their marriage and their family life. That was a big one for me. I also played Colin Parry in a, in a single drama called uh, Mother's Day, which was obviously about the the IRA bombing in Warrington, which took the life of uh, Tim Parry, Colin and Wendy's son. That was, um, I think that one was probably the most kind of um, difficult to, to act in because, I mean, uh, Tim was exactly the same age as my son Milo. I oh, think wow. he was. Um, I think he was uh, twelve. I think I might be getting that wrong, but you can't I help mean, but let that kind of comparison slip into your mind, no matter how awful that no, thought is. I mean, it's I just bound to happen, isn't it? Definitely helped the fact that I was a father myself. I, I think it, it would have been a sort of different performance if I hadn't been a father, and so 
you can't help but let your mind wander to that sort of magic if question. How would it, how would I feel if um, that would if that had happened to me? You know, and I think something like Mother's Day. You know, you meet Colin and Wendy, and you kind of get their their blessing uh, as such. But you, as an actor, for me personally, I was like, am I emotionally going to be able to get to that point of you know? how difficult it was for them. And the thing was that the, the, the Tim Parry story is so heartbreaking that in a way I didn't have to reach for it at all. It was all there. It was, um, but it was definitely the most difficult thing I've ever uh, shot. And I was blessed to work obviously again with Anna Maxwell Martin who played my wife and it, Wendy. So, and it was brilliantly directed by um, Fergus O'Brien who I'd shot, another single drama against the law with. So again, that was a quite a tough thing to film. So it, it all depends on, I think I'm much better though, Matt, now I'm 20 years down the line with things where you can, you know, when I started out as a young actor, it was, it was like life and death to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, you want uh, to own it and live in it and inhabit it. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I think I've got better over the years. My wife would probably disagree with you <laughs> but, uh, with, with me, but um, I, I feel like I've got, I can see it much more as a job now. And I think, you know, when you have kids yourself and you get older and wiser, you know, they don't really care about a scene has been difficult to film or the costume wasn't right or whatever it is, you know, you're back to reality pretty quickly. At the end of the day, it's just a job and um, albeit, you know, um, an important one, but it, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, it just, I didn't want to be one of those actors who's old and grey and they haven't got a family to show for it or, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Just I their dusty um, awards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's what life's about, is it? Do you know what I mean? I mean, awards on a mantelpiece are never going to keep you warm at night, are they really? They're nice <laughs> to look at, but it's not probably not what it's about. Hey, uh, I'd like, uh, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to share the story about how your uh, your co-star and your good pal, Stephen Graham, helped, uh, you know, you seduce your wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he wasn't that up close and personal. <laughs> he didn't give me a to-do list. <laughs> but you worked together many, many, many years ago, right, on uh, a show which I've since watched, since we last spoke, and what, oh, right. what a cult classic. It's one of those shows that I never was aware of because I never had like MTV or Sky growing up, so I missed out on a bunch of shows yeah. like that. Written by Johnny Vaughan, uh, called Top Buzzer, yeah. kind of like a, a sitcom about like a dope dealer, right? Yeah, it was described as the world's first uh, dope opera. So it was written <laughs> by Johnny Vaughan and Ed Allen, Dave Allen's son. And um, it was this uh, mad sort of sitcom for MTV. And it was uh, Stephen Graham and James Lance. They were Sticky and Lee, and they were they were basically um, cannabis <laughs> dealers. And I played Colton, the um, annoying neighbour that used to com come around and ponce weed the whole time. Um, but it, it became a cult classic. I mean, look, there's still stoners that come up to me now and and quote uh, lines from Top Buzzer. But my <laughs> my wife Lou was the uh, makeup designer on it. I uh, I fancied her from the word go, but I was just too shy to ask her out. And then I got on like a house on fire with Steve, and I told Steve, and he was like, "What are you doing? Just ask her out." And I said, "I can't." And 
in the end, he was our Silla Black, and he asked her out for me, and then it all. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, two point four children and a dog later. I owe it, it's all down to Stephen Graham. Yeah, so um, I love stories like that. That's beautiful. Yeah. He's just a great yeah, guy yeah. as well, isn't he? He's so warm and lovable and personable and generous and sincere. And he's not only a great actor, but he's a great man as well, isn't he? Yeah, I think the reason why Stephen's characters leap off the screen is the, the natural humanity and warmth that Stephen has in himself. That always bleeds through into his performances. I mean, he's an absolute dynamo on set. You know, he's got this ferocious energy. Yep. And he's able to somehow harness that. But along with it, he has this huge heart as well. And I think, I mean, you know, when I think of his performance recently in uh, Shane Meadows, Meadows, The Virtues, it just, I mean, for me personally, I thought that was Stephen's best work to date. And, and, and when you look at his track record and the performances that he's given in the past, that is saying something. Yeah. And I just, I just think, you know, he's got, it, it, for this industry, it's all about longevity and it's all about how far you can take it. And I think in a way, when I look at Stephen, I think the best is still is, is yet to come. Do you know what I mean? And I think you've only sort of seen the, the tip of the iceberg with him. I mean, that's always the mystique and the beauty of the acting profession is it you can go deeper with it and you can, it can resonate a lot deeper. And, you know, hopefully I, I can say the same about me that there's parts I haven't played and it's sort of about trying to sniff those out and, growing as an actor as you as you get older well your list is amazing there's like big budget movies low budget movies hollywood movies british movies film tv i'd like to touch on some of the stuff over the years in a bit but i would like to get into white lines a bit more because i watched the whole series one well the only series now right but i watched the see the season last week and and i loved it i thought it was like obviously you know a kind of very far-fetched premise but then you know it's entertainment so why shouldn't it be um and I just adore Laura Haddock. I think she is so... Oh, yeah. She's like old school movie star quality. There's just something about her. She's so watchable and likable and engaging as, as a performer. And your role in it as Marcus, he's just the most <laughs> lovable, hilarious, like half-wit. He's so great. Yeah. And what, uh, like, what a fun experience, first of all, it must have been just shooting that out in sunny Spain. Um, but it's, I mean, my favorite scene in the whole thing is the scene where you and Laura, uh, you're in a car and you've got a boat tied to the back of it with dead bodies in the boat. And you're driving through this tiny alleyway (laughs) and it's like a religious procession is coming towards you. And these kids are like jumping on the boat and they're trying to ride it. And you're obviously like, fuck the bodies are in there. So you run out to try and stop them playing. And then the boat comes off like the hinge (laughs) snaps your leg, which is already broken. And you're just screaming on the floor with these nuns, like, it was so funny and tense and just, you know, a lot of... Was that one of your favourite scenes to shoot in the whole thing, that one? Yeah, I mean, it was that the... It's funny you mentioned that scene. She gives me the last rights, doesn't she, or something, the nun. Yeah. And then I tell her, that I went, I'll go do one. That was an ad, ad lib. That was just... That, that just happened in the moment, which they kept in, which was very funny. Um, but I just... I mean, look, you mentioned Laura Haddock. I, I just do want to big her up because Laura she I mean on all of these productions it always starts at the very top you know she was our lead in it and I have to say she didn't have an off day I've never ever seen someone work so hard as Laura Haddock on White Lines because sometimes there was like three units filming at once it was a gigantuan effort that whole shoot you know we were filming in 
in Madrid, in Mallorca. We had a stint in Ibiza. And sometimes she was jumping from three units. And she never, ever had an off day. She was always prepared. She always knew her line. She always had an amazing energy and grace about her. And I have nothing but the utmost respect and admiration for Laura. I think she's a stellar actor. And, yeah, she's um, amazing. Just delivered the goods. But as you can imagine, the whole shoot was, I mean, I, I've gone on record and said, without a shadow of a doubt, I mean, I, I love playing Jim Keats in Ashes to Ashes, but my most enjoyable role today was Marcus White. <laughs> it's got to be, right? The Hawaiian shirts, like, just smoking <laughs> dope, just, like the lovable yeah. loser driving around in, like, a tiny little child's Jeep <laughs> car. <laughs> everything, everything about it was just hilarious. The clothes were hilarious, that sort of, uh, yeah, the car, the little car he was driving, the fact that his leg was broken, he's got these Romanian drug dealers after him, <laughs> his marriage is going down the tube, but he still thinks he's the man. And yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. And I think everyone knows someone like Marcus who basically can't stop partying and still thinks he's 21. Yeah. You know, it's great. And I mean, I, if I read White Lines, I could just sort of visualise it. But Left Bank, the production company, and Netflix, they just did an amazing job. And I I mean, I don't think I've been in a show which has been loved so much by the audience. And the fact that, you know, sadly, it looks like we're never going to be doing a second series. I mean, the fallout from it's been huge because, I mean, for me, that show has an amazing fan base. And it's... It was well received then. People did love it because I was watching it because I'd sort of read somewhere that, you know, the the response had been negative, so it wasn't recommissioned. So I watched it and I was like, this is an amazing show. What's not to like about this? No, I don't think it's been recommissioned for those reasons at all because, um, I mean, you know, I I have to look at it and say it was number one for over a month on the UK top top 10. Yeah. It was number one all across Europe. It was number one. It was the most... I mean, listen, man, it was the, the number one show streamed on IMDb. I mean, we must have been doing something right. And I think, you know, everything about it I loved. I loved the writing. I loved how ambitious it was. I loved the fact that there was English actors, there was Spanish actors, Portuguese, this eclectic mix of all these nationalities. The locations were to die for. You had two time frames running parallel. So you had all these amazing younger actors. Tom Reese Harris, Kel Spellman played me, uh, you know, as a 21-year-old. And I think the way that they jumped between those two time frames was sensational. I think what they Uh, also did really well, Danny, was the mix of quite heavy, dark, tragic material and then very light-hearted, funny stuff, but then also, like, really exploring friendship dynamics and how people evolve and grow or don't over time and what pressures that puts on groups of friends as they go from kind of adolescence to adulthood. I thought it juggled all of those tones really well as well. Yeah, I mean, listen, I I, I defy anyone to watch the last episode of White Lines and not say that was one of the best bits of television they've seen for a long time. And, you know, I, I... I would have loved to have played that character. I'd have loved to have gone on and played him in, 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 a, in a second series, but alas, it's probably... I <laughs> You'd mean, have been moving you know, the family out to Spain if you could, right? <laughs> yeah, I just had visions of him going to Bolivia and becoming this drug lord. I had visions <laughs> yeah, of him being yeah. like... Oh, the character arc with him could have been amazing, couldn't it? You could have gone in so yeah, many amazing because, directions. Um, he just makes wrong judgments he makes terrible decisions <laughs> over and over and i think um and you continually love him for it don't you as a, as a viewer you just can't help yeah, but love him. i mean 
Matt, as soon as I read the first episode and that you got to the bit with the pristine lawn and the big giant banana and the, the line of cocaine and, uh, and the dogs, and I was just like, Sign me up. Who the hell's who's written this? And you find out it's Alex Pina and he's done Money Heist, and you just go, I'm in, I'm totally in. It's just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I can't recommend it enough to anybody listening to this as well. And I'm a oh, DJ, a so DJ. I can kind of understand yeah, I mean, that world a bit as well and the characters that inhabit yeah. it. I mean, I love the soundtrack in it. I mean, they released the album. The soundtrack is brilliant in itself. We got to sh- I got to film in like uh, Fabric Nightclub just outside Madrid, which was like the biggest nightclub I've ever, ever been in. Amazing. Um, and I love the energy of it. I love how sort of vivacious and in your face that whole show is. And I, and I think, you know, it obviously landed in lockdown and it was everybody's sort of summer I, I be for fix. I mean, it yeah. just sort of hit exactly the right time. And, you know, from my point of view as well, all my dad's side of the family are all from Manchester. So there's just so many oh, recognisable right. personality traits in a lot of those characters as well. It, it felt like, you know, yeah. oh, I know these people. I know this world. Just put a big smile on my face, man. I loved it. Um, oh, well, great. you know, may, maybe it will get revisited when the COVID dies down. Um, I would love oh, to, no. I'd love to go to line of duty. I know you were only in one episode, but what, what an episode that is, what a character that is, yeah. what, what a storyline, um, what you do in such a short space of time from a writing standpoint, from a performance standpoint. Again, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just kind of describing to me how that offer was presented, your initial reaction, and then we'll talk about getting stuck into it with Vicky McClure and the rest of those amazing actors on that show uh, yeah it, it was just um i used to be uh flatmates with craig parkinson who plays the caddy in it and i did so yeah I'd watch, when you were like a drama yeah, yeah. school or yeah no i i split with a girlfriend as did craig and then um, we did a uh, a reading together and we just instantly hit it off and then he was looking for a flat as was i and then we we, we had a, a mental year, a flat sharing for a year. freshly um, single young upcoming actors yeah yeah it was like it was like i remember us having a flat warming and uh it pretty much got gate crashed by the entire uh people in crouch end it was like the yellow pages advert with the <laughs> go on in the who was there and all who that. was there uh james Corden was there and dominic cooper was there and i know they were probably two of the biggest names anyway it was many many years ago and they were living uh, together but- as well right I think they were living together, James and uh, Dominic. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was a mad, mad party. But <laughs> he seems like night. a really good guy, Craig does. Another one who, yeah, he, he's so warm and affable uh, in life and, as as you were saying with Stephen, that, that humanity and that humour and that pathos and all of that sensitivity and warmth within him shines in, oh, all, yeah. in all his roles, doesn't it? And if you haven't heard his amazing... Uh, podcast. He does the two shot podcast. I love he, it. I want to get him on mine. I absolutely love it. I think yeah, it's one of the best I mean, podcasts he, in the UK. So I mean, he started out with actors, and he but he does musicians and poets and 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 loads of different people now. So I mean, I wholeheartedly recommend um, anyone if they if they haven't listened to it to do so because it's brilliant. And I, I I did an episode of it a few years back now. But so I'd, I'd I'd watched Craig in the in the first two series and was a massive fan and you obviously look at it and think it's um it's Lenny James and Killy Hawes as the as the lead actors in it and then you get the audition that comes in saying you've got a meeting for the new protagonist for the third series and you're like wow that sounds amazing and they send the script through 
and then you sit down and you read it and you get into that 10 page interrogation scene written by the masterful Jed Mercurio and you're like and you're just reading speech after speech like because the, the character is this like robot he's got this sort of really hard veneer of this uh, armed response p- police officer and you think what an amazing piece of writing and then you get to the end of it and then you have that the rug is pulled from beneath you and you're like hold on a minute what's happened there and so I had to go in and audition and that's the first thing that came out of my mouth was just like so what's going on are you are you does he survive and they went <laughs> is there flashbacks no. <laughs> yeah and they go unfortunately not Danny that's that, that this is what we're going to do we're going to announce the new lead actor and then we're going to kill him off at the beginning of the second episode but and I was just like wow okay so I had to audition for it and I remember reading some pages from from that interrogation scene and and, um, you know, can I, I ask you a question, to, Danny? Did, did you consider yeah. turning it down because it was, you know, because of the brevity of the role? No, 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 not at all. No. I mean, I, I, I know. I mean, I, as soon as I read it, it was one of those that I, I just thought this is, uh, I just recognized it as an amazing opportunity and a fantastic part, you know, and, um, yeah. and it is such, it's it, such a rich layered part, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, listen, it was a definite game changer for me. I mean, it, I'm talking probably about five years ago we did it. I mean, I got BAFTA nominated. It seemed to, put, you know, raise me up a notch. And um, the roles that have come in after Line of Duty have been fantastic, you know. But it, it was, for an hour's television, you know, where it took me as an actor, it was, and what I had to do with the audience was phenomenal. You know, you were absolutely repulsed by this guy he comes down this you know um criminal at the very beginning and you're i mean it's totally edgy of seat opening to that episode that series you know it was what, what on earth's going on here and yet by the end of that ep, you're kind of you feel this degree of sympathy for him because you realize that this guy has been sexually abused he's carrying around this torment and this abuse uh, and somehow I, was, I managed to sort of portray that in, in an hour's piece of television and, and get a BAFTA nomination for it, which was amazing, you know. So, um, I mean, to, to, to date, it's one of the most memorable days filming. The interrogation scene was the penultimate day's filming for me. It was the second to last day. And I, I mean, it was just amazing to sit across from Vicky McClure, Adrian Dunbar and Martin and... and just to film that scene, it was great. And we all went out in Belfast and we went to the merchant and, and uh, we had tapas. We went to the merchant and Adrian Dunmore said, I'm going to buy you a really expensive bottle of red wine and we're going to drink it together because you deserve it, Danny. And I had such an amazing uh, experience with all of those guys. And um, they look like they have yeah, a lot I, I, of fun I, on set. They're always sharing things on their personal, you know, just Instagram, social media pages. And you always yeah. just kind of see, well, these guys are genuinely friends and they're loving every day at work. And they're just, you know, not only producing great work, but they're they're enjoying each other's company and just having the best time doing it. Well, I think so. I mean, you know, mine comes from Ken Loach and Vicky is, is Shane Meadows and Adrian done so much work. So they're just, I think they have within themselves those three actors uh, and lots of other people in it. You know, they're very good in social realism, social realism. They have a sort of uh, amazing realness and truthfulness to their acting. And I think the fact that you've got that 
style of acting within that writing in that thriller type show um, that keeps you on the edge of your seat. It's just a winning formula. And anything that, you know, the, the fact that it's police investigating police for me is absolute gold. And the fact that it's written by Jeb Mercurio, who is so intelligent, has uh, a complete understanding of the mechanics of the police force. And he's, you know, got advisors around him that the dialogue is second to none. The level of detail in it is second to none. You know, when I think about all of those passages of dialogue, I had to learn of how a bullet flies through an air and how a gun works. And I mean, all of that comes from Jed. So it's, 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 it's an absolute gift, really, when you get to speak it. And what I love about Series 3 was that it seemed to just, uh, the floodgate seemed to open for that show after that series. And it, it has become this sort of juggernaut now. And it's on BBC One and it's BBC One's, you know, one of their top rating shows. So I'm just happy for Jed and those actors and World Productions and Simon Heath and all those people that make it. Um, I'm just over the moon for them, yeah. And they did a similar thing, spoiler alert, with, with Stephen Graham's character, didn't they? And I love the bravery of those choices <laughs> and, and the, the feeling of excitement and, you know, just to be able to take a chance like that and know that the payoff's going to work because it's going to be memorable and brilliant and different. And I think that, you know, not many yeah. projects do that, do they? No, I think that's the beauty of Jeb Mercurio as well, is that he, he's not afraid to pull the rug. And I think, um, I think, you know, I think they're on their sixth or seventh series now. And I think the audience love that about it. And they're, they're sort of waiting to see what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. We had, we had line of duty death comparisons on the set of Code 404. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, the, the beauty of line of duty is they are able to, because the writing is so good, they're able to entice these really fantastic actors like Stephen. You've got the equally brilliant Kelly McDonald in it now. You had Tandy Newton, you know, so the caliber of actors they're able to attract is second to none. And I think, I mean, I don't know if the, the next series they do will be um, the last one. That's what I keep hearing. But um, if it is, then I imagine that they could bring, you know, a phenomenal heavyweight actor in to bring it to a close. But I feel so lucky that I'm in that ensemble of actors, particularly the, the people that have played the protagonist, you know, and it was brilliantly started by Lenny James, who I, I just just love Lenny's work. I love uh, Save Me, which he's gone on to do, and he's written that himself. I think he's such a, a, a phenomenal actor to watch. And then you had Keely Halls following him, and for me, what Keely did in Line of Duty was her best work today. I think it was, there was no vanity in it. Uh, so, I, I, you know, it, it just offers amazing opportunities for whoever is in it. So um, I hope it goes from strength to strength. Do you think as well that was the one, because you've been consistently working for the last 20 years, really, but it seems to have been yeah. in the, you know, in, in the wake of that show, in that particular role that you've kind of moved from the supporting actor to the leading role in a lot of these great TV series that you've been in and, some of the more recent yeah. films like Fisherman's Friends. Uh, was that the game-changing yeah. moment, do you think, then? Possibly. I mean, it, it all did, I always say to young actors starting out, you know, no role is ever too small enough. You can, you know, a, a case in point is Line of Duty. It's one episode, but you're able to make an impact. I mean, I remember when I went into the Line of Duty audition, I'd done a show called Public Enemies, which was written by the brilliant Tony Marchant. That was opposite. And a thrill. That was a massive sort of role for me as well. And I, 
And I do remember, because Jed and Tony are uh, firm friends, and I remember the first thing that Jed said. He said, by the way, before we start, I just want to say I watch Public Enemies, and I thought you were phenomenal in it. And you go, great. You've got a kind of, do you know what I mean? You've got like a you feel a bit bolstered by that, and you think, right, let's deliver, go ahead and deliver the audition. So I think it's all about longevity. It's about consistently delivering in each performance that you're fortunate enough to get. And I think work then, for me, work breeds work, whether that be a director wanting to continue the working relationship or the producer that you got on with. Um, do you know what I mean? It's about and it's about having a great relationship with your agent and then wanting to, to push you in different directions. And I think the longer you stay in the game, hopefully the different opportunities will come your way. I mean, my dear old acting teacher, Dee Cannon, who just passed away, sadly, from RADA. Um, I saw I you post a out. very you know, lovely, heartfelt tribute to, on your, your Instagram yeah, page. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'd been so busy, and I'd, we'd, it's not that we'd lost contact, but I hadn't spoke to her for a while, um, and she always came to all the plays and supported me. And she was really the person that opened up my whole mind to the brilliance of acting of how it can enrich your life and how you can internalize a character and use the Stanislavski technique and emotional recall and the magic if. And so she was really my blueprint. She was the one that really sparked my imagination with it all. And um, she sadly passed away from cancer and I never got the chance to say, getting emotional now, but to say um, sort of thank you to her really. So, it, it was, it's sort of bittersweet that um, I just didn't get a chance to say goodbye to her, but it, I've sort of lost my train of thought now, but she meant the absolute world to me. Um, and every performance I've, I've gone on to deliver is all because of her it's teaching. Pe- it's and- people like that really are that I think are the absolute like life source of the creative industries. The people that put their arm around you when you're young and inexperienced and developing and hungry and, kind of shape you and direct you and give you those tools as you say and and instill that excitement and that thirst to grow in you and they're often the people obviously because they're not in the public domain that kind of go unsung but they're they're the people aren't they that really you know drive whether it's a musician a songwriter an actor whatever it is these teachers and these mentors she, she totally put her arm around me and i gravitated towards her because you know, I'd come from stage school. I'd come from Italia Conti, which was all kind of, which was brilliant, but it was it was tits and teeth. Do you know what I mean? It was from the <laughs> yeah. outside yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, lots of my fellow students had all been to university. They were all brilliantly educated and they could all talk to the cows come home about um, the process of acting. Technique, I, darling, yeah. A bit of that. I mean, they were all great, but I got very intimidated when I first went to RADA because it was so different. And I, all, I was always aware that I was walking through the front doors of RADA every single day. And, um, you know, I was shying away from Shakespeare classes and I wasn't being myself and I, wasn't, I didn't have any confidence. And it was only when I walked into these acting classes three times a week that it just sort of, all of a sudden, she ignited something in me. And I was able to then... Get, get rid of all those inhibitions and just go into the space and do it because ultimately that's what it's all about. You can philosophize and talk, talk a good game, but it's about what you do when they shout action or the curtain goes up. It's how truthful you are, how believable you are in the moment. 
and it was the teachings of Dee Cannon and everything she gave me that I hold on to to this day. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And it must be really exciting for you because it sounds like you come from a very similar school and approach when you get to work with the likes of Vicky McClure, Stephen Graham, Chanel Creswell, obviously Thomas Turgoose and Swimming With Men as well. All these people that kind yeah. of come from that, as you mentioned earlier, like social realist approach that it's just so naturalistic, isn't it? And it's almost like second nature. Like it's not forced. It's not contrived. It's not staged in any real way. It's about pure emotional truth. No, but I always think, you know, actors say to me oh do you advise going to drama school or and I, I always do I think drama school is an amazing opportunity to give you a box of tricks when you leave it will give you technique it'll introduce you to playwrights it'll, it'll you know you'll do voice work physicality all that stuff but the actors you just mentioned and and even actors that got, you know are fortunate enough to go to drama school you have an innate talent you have this fire which burns in you you can either act or you can't. Do you know what I mean? It's whether you're believable or not. Yeah. And it's about harnessing that talent, using the techniques to unleash that talent. That's what drama school does. But the actors that you mentioned there, I mean, a lot of them have been in This Is England and that. They have a raw, that they're raw. You know what I mean? Act, you should always hold on to that rawness, that, that thing that made you want to be an actor in the first place. Because that's all you've got. It's always about the fire that burns inside. And you have to protect that and you have to nurture that. And that's the thing that motors you along in this industry. And it's your own private thing, you know, and it's about when they say action and what it is you bring to the table. So it's a personal thing. And um, it should, you know, if you're thinking about being an actor, you've got to be 110% sure that that's what you want to do. Because it's not for the faint hearted. It's over depopulated. It's competitive. And it's not a walk in the park. You know, it has to be life or death. And and I, I don't want to sound dramatic when I say that. No, I, be, I believe you. Thing. I mean, even just the process of auditioning and the knockbacks that yeah. you must get time after time after time, unless you're a real lifer, as you say, and it's in you and you need to express yourself. And it's almost like yeah. a calling, again, without being overly dramatic. Um, you know, it's 
it has to, I think, be a lifelong pursuit and you have to do it for the pure love of the craft, right? Because it's just too hard. The reality of it is too hard for the faint hearted. They're not going to last. I think if you get, you have to get used to rejection. You have to get used to the word no, that it hasn't gone your way. It hasn't worked out. You just weren't quite right for this part. Yeah. Yeah. You get used to those phrases over and over again, but it's about how you, you should be angry if you don't get something. It should piss you off, but it should. And you channel that, right? Fire. You channel that energy. You channel it and say, right, okay, that one hasn't gone my way. But next time I'm in a room with that person, I'm not, I'm, I'm, they're not going to say no. They're not going to say no is not a, not, not a choice for them. So it's about how you fuel that disappointment and, and how you use it. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, there's, it, it's not rocket science acting. I, sometimes I think, you know, kids can act. They're, you know, you get these brilliant child actors. I mean, I, I, I watched the other day that amazing um, audition tape from the kid that was in E.T. What was that? What's that actor's name? Elliot? Oh, he's a character's name, Elliot. Yeah, he I was in something the... recently as an adult, and he was brilliant in that. Right. I mean, if you go and watch on YouTube his audition tape. and it's For E.T., is it? By... Yeah, yeah. Where, I mean, he was saying goodbye. It's the end of the movie, and uh, it's the most amazing audition because... I mean, he's just utterly in that moment saying goodbye to him and he's in floods of tears. And the amazing thing is you get Steven Spielberg saying, kid, at the end of it, you got the part. It's just amazing. (laughs) So it's about, you know, um, it's not rocket science, but it's about having the staying power and putting the work in, you know, and it's always about wiping the slate clean with every new character that you play and coming at it afresh. And, and ticking all the boxes, do you know what I mean? It's always about how much work you put in. I mean, that's my philosophy. I say to my son, Milo, and my kids, I say, you know, you're only going to get out of life what you put into it. And that you can apply that to anything, you know? So um, that's how I go about things. I hear you, mate. I actually just posted a little I don't usually post those kind of like inspirational quotes because I find them a bit corny. Yeah. But I've just been seeing a lot of negativity and kind of criticism and judgment and a lot of people just on the internet kind of venting their frustrations. And I understand currently with the way we're, you know, in this situation, a lot of people feel betrayed, let down, and they're kind of venting. But I was, you know, thinking about that quote from Gandhi, which is be the change in the world that you want to see. Like, it starts with you. And if you're only putting out negativity and you're just moaning and, you know, you're just sending out bad vibes into the world, it's not going to create or contribute anything positive or good, is it? So why don't you just concentrate on you and the people you care about, start there, and, and let's try and change the world, like, for the better for everybody. Yeah, because I had a, I mean, I, I get it. I mean, we, it is tough at the moment, you know, and I had a real um, thing in lockdown when we were, and we were about to go back to shoot Code 404 and I had a phone call from Stephen Graham and he said, how are you feeling about this? Because I feel a little bit, I said, I know what you're going to say. It's like how, it, it felt like our first job. We were a bit ring rusty, but I had this deeper thing of like thinking how, relevant is it what i do for a living do you know what i mean i'm just an actor i pretend to be other people uh and i'm jumping around and doing all of that but it's like having come off the back of frontline workers and the nhs doing this amazing you know all of the sacrifices that they've made and i thought how how relevant is it i mean what is it is it important what am i doing does it mean anything anymore and and, and it is i mean an actor is their job is to entertain and to offer this form of escapism. And I think right now with what we're all experiencing, people do need a release. They do need, that's why I'm desperate to get 
the theatres up and running again because when all of these restrictions are in place and, and sort of life itself is taken away from us and we're getting this feeling of separation and abandonment, it's a terrible thing for our mental health. But it's great that these shows that I'm in, they're on the, the TV and hopefully they serve their purpose, really. Um, well, that's so where people it, it, turn, it, it, isn't it, in these times, is they turn to comedy and television and cinema and music yeah. and, and literature and podcasts. And these are the, you know, the arts, they're everything. It's like Churchill said, right, he did a lot of bad, dumb stuff. But one thing that he was always great about was if, if we're not protecting the arts, then what's the point? Do you know what I mean? Like that is the very essence yeah. of humanity is these things that enrich our lives. And I know what you're saying. Yeah. You might kind of doubt yourself sometimes and think, well, I'm not saving lives. I'm not changing the world. But actually, what I am doing is putting something positive and good into the world and actually having, you know, these subtle waves of impact in people's lives that are putting a smile on their face, that are making them cry, that are moving them, that are inspiring them. And that that's real and that's important, I think. Yeah, and it's, it's actually right what you say, Matt. Everyone can just do their bit. And I think, you know, we can all kind of muddle on through and, you know, be responsible for ourselves. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll come through this in horrendous uh, pandemic, which we're, we're experiencing. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. You mentioned Spielberg a moment ago, mate. Uh, how was working that on... Little name, that little name drop. <laughs> <laughs> Segwaying into Tintin, which at that time, I guess, would have been at, right at the forefront of that technology. Um, tell me yeah. about just being on set, making Tintin with Spielberg. How about that? Uh, it was a complete sort of uh, pinch me moment. And uh, yeah, you mentioned it was motion capture, which I hadn't done before. Um and it was, um, listen, I had to try and style it out on set, but, you know, there's a little person inside you going, oh, my God, there's Steven Spielberg directing you. Yeah. But he was amazing. He was just this sort of bundle of energy, and he had this sort of, I don't know, he had this ethereal, magical quality around him, and the way he would just ingeniously come up with ideas in the moment and just have fun with it, Um it was just incredible. And, uh, yeah, I shot it out in LA and there was, you know, Daniel Craig was in it and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and all these amazing uh, actors. So it was just an absolute, uh, joy really from start to finish. And Andy Serkis, like lead in the field, right? Cause he was obviously the guy that was, you know, the most associated with that whole development in technology because of Lord of the Rings and King Kong and, He's the guy, isn't he? What was it like, kind of, were you all learning from him to some extent, like how to apply what you know about your craft in this new context? Oh, totally. I mean, like, Andy's like the motion capture guru, isn't he, off the back of Gollum and all the stuff he's done on Lord of the Rings. And, I mean, it was, a, it was, it was you know, the technology involved, it was just sort of completely alien to me because, I mean, first and foremost, you had to sit in a makeup chair and have 200 reflective dots painted onto your face then you then your body is rommed for a computer and you have like an all-in-one wetsuit on with these uh white reflective balls all around your body um and then you have a sort of helmet with an arm coming around with a camera which photographs uh, and films your facial expressions so it's it's kind of hard um, to look cool <laughs> you can't look cool in that stuff whatsoever <laughs> but you're the whole and then they animate over the performance so uh, you would go to Andy and he said listen I mean 
in essence, it's like doing a piece of theatre. And the more expressive you are of your face and the more expressive you are within your physicality, the better for them, you know, it works for them, you know, I mean, they can sort of manipulate the performance. So it was really, uh, it was quite freeing in a way. You didn't have to worry about camera angles or anything because the whole thing was being picked up 360 degrees. But yeah, you're right. You can't style it out when you're wearing that. And the thing about the tinting experience was because it was so sort of advanced in the technology and because it was Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg, lots of A-list actors were coming down. And so my stuff was with Mackenzie Crook. I love him. And we were like the, we were like a double act together. And yeah. I remember I remember standing there one day, and he's like, and so so you'd be like, he'd nudge me one day, and he was like, look look who it is, and you'd look up, and there was Tom Cruise standing there, um, <laughs> just at the monitors, and he's like, let's go and talk to him, and I'm like, no, we look like overgrown sperm, Mackenzie. I'm not going, <laughs> I'm not going out and talk to Tom Cruise like this, and then Clint Eastwood come down and. It was just amazing the amount of people that visited the set. But it was, um, I love Tintin as a movie. I think it's a real kind of work of art. And I think he, they did an amazing job on it. I think we're almost at the end of our time, Danny, because I know you've got another interview after me. I wanted to ask yes. you very quickly about Star Wars, if you wouldn't mind. Um, I know it's kind yeah. of just like a, you know, a blink and you'll miss it kind of cameo part. But um, were you a kid that grew up with that cinematic franchise, like as a heavy part of your of your life was that you know a movie series that inspired you and lit you up as a kid yeah i was definitely into star wars much more than star trek i wasn't a trekkie by any stretch and then um when the new episodes came out the new um jj abraham episodes um milo my son he was really getting into it so what we did we in preparation for the Force Awakens before that was released, we watched in chronological order all of the six episodes up until that point. That must have been a nice and journey so, to go on with your son as well. What a cool moment! Oh, it was just cool. And then you sort of, you know, naturally you're, you're a kid again. You know, when the sort of graphic comes up at the beginning. Uh, so when uh, we, I remember, uh, yeah. yeah, when when we sat down to watch The Force Awakens, we were, I was, like, you know, I, just, I was really into it, and then. Um, then this offer came in for the reshoots on Rogue One and uh, it was kind of like another sort of pinch me moment. And, and they said, you've been offered this role. Do you want to do it? Um, we'll send you the scene. And it was like a proper three page scene with all this exposition in it. And I was like, it's an amazing opportunity. Yeah, of course I want to do that. And I remember, you know, the director, Tony Gilroy saying, you cannot tell anyone about this. And I was like, oh yeah, well, I take that, you know, as read. He went, no, no, no you cannot tell anyone that you're doing this film. So I was like, fine. And so I went back into the kitchen and the first person I told was my son. And, he said, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, don't tell anyone, Milo. And to be fair, he didn't. He was a really good boy. That's a I good said, trust exercise be... right there. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, and his jaw hit the, I think he was on the phone or he's playing a game. And, he, and, he, and I said, daddy's going to be in the next Star Wars film. And his jaw hit the floor. He went, you're kidding me. And I said, you're not allowed to tell any of your mates, all right? You can't. And, and this is a funny story. When the when Rogue One was released, um, he went to a, uh, one of his mates' parties and the, one of the dads had had a miniature um, private screening for Rogue One. And so Milo's sitting there with all of his mates and he hadn't, he hadn't uh, told them what I was in it. And all of a sudden his dad pops up. And they're like, oh my God. 
Milo, it's your daddy. It's Dick Milo's daddy. Oh, my God. And then obviously I'd get killed. And I went, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just a funny moment for Milo. But I love Rogue One. I thought it was, for those spin-off films, I think it's the best one. It's proper dark. It really works. Yeah, they really reinvented it, didn't they? They got rid of the opening title sequence and all those kind of like iconic yeah. things about the original series, which obviously everybody loved. So that in itself was a brave move. And I think you need to reinvent, don't you? Like the Batman franchise did that great, those Christopher Nolan films. I think sometimes if you're going to update it yeah. into the into the modern era, you need to take a new approach. And they did that but I remember, really well. I remember Tony Gilroy, the director, saying, because I said, oh, I'm getting killed off again. And he went, what do you mean? And I went, I get killed off. Like, you know, I'm either blown up, stabbed, shot, poisoned. And he went, hey, man, you, they can, you know, a prequel, baby, you can come back. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, all right, all right. I figured out. And lo and behold, they're doing a TV spin-off with Diego Luna's character. And Amazing. I'm like, where's the phone? Where's the phone call? You've got you to bring Tibbet back. But um, we're, we're waiting by the phone, waiting for it to ring. But there you go. Who is, who's kind of one of your top, if you had to choose one, who's the top director you'd most like to work with? I know you've worked with some amazing and varied ones already. Michael Bay, Mike Lee, Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Um, who's the top of I your wish list that you'd love to work with the I most? Think, I think it's everyone that Stephen Graham's worked with. I'm constantly going, what was what was School Daisy like to work with? What Shane Me- I mean, I'd love to do something with Shane Meadows. Um, uh, I, you know, I think he is arguably the most imaginative and relevant filmmaker in Britain that's working at the moment. So, and I've, I've loved his stuff. I've lo- I love all the acting performances in it and how deep he gets into all of the characters. You know, I think it's, um, I'd have to do something with him. And, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, the list is endless in it. You think Michael Mann or but definitely Scorsese, but, um, We'll wait and see what happens. That's it. Stephen, you know, you hooked me up with my wife. You've got to get on the case with Shane. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> Match Stephen, make this throw one. me a bone. <laughs> throw me a bone. I mean, there's a funny moment there. We've got this sort of weird computer, this robot thing in the second series of um, Code 404. And we were thinking, oh, what actor can we get to voice it? And um, I was like, just phone Al Pacino. I mean, you're mates with him now, right? Just get him or Bobby De Niro. Can't you just make a call, Stephen, and get it done? <laughs> Um, Doesn't he do yeah, the best great. Al Pacino impression as well? The hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does all that. I mean, I love all of his uh, anecdotes of being on set in The Irishman. It's, it's, they're just a sort of joy to listen to. And I have to say, it's not just because he's one of my best mates, but I mean, I thought Stephen was arguably the best thing in it. I wanted to see more of his character. In The Irishman, him. 100%. Yeah, the, the, the scene with him and... Uh, him and Pacino, for me, were the, the top yeah. two, like, just most engaging performances in that yeah, film, Yeah, when they're for sure. talking about being being late to the meeting, I thought that was my, my favourite scene in it. And yeah. uh, he just did a terrific <laughs> job. What's your favourite onset anecdote to finish with, Danny? Have you got one that stands out? Oh, um, <laughs> oh you put me on the spot there. God, there must be... Or, or if one doesn't spring to mind, who's just the most like eccentric, bizarre actor you've ever worked with? Like full method, cuckoo, genius, but just out there. <laughs> well, I did listen to. I did listen to. Um, this just popped into my head. I did because David Morrissey does a podcast now, and he talks to actors about their most um, or one of the most memorable roles in their career. 
and he was talking to Eddie Marzan, who is a, an amazing actor, who, and they were talking about Vera Drake. Yeah. So that was a, the, the Mike Lee film that I was in. An amazing and, movie, yeah. that and All or Nothing, obviously those two early yeah. key films for you. Brilliant, brilliant films. Yeah. And uh, I've gotten this hilarious story that happened. It's a bit rude, but I'll tell it anyway. Um, there's the engagement party scene in that in that film. Yeah. And... Um, we are we, the, the 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 Drake family had this sort of old fashioned table that extends out. Mm-hmm. You know those sort of you know like more and it was like there lots of people around there. It goes we from a four there, to a six kind of thing. Exactly like that. And when you're in a Mike Lee improvisation, you never come out of the character till you're told to come out. And they can go on for hours and hours and hours. The, there was a long lot. There was a fifteen hour improvisation on Vera Drake. Wow. When she gets a, when she got arrested. There was a whole area of the police uh, station that we didn't know about. But I do remember in a very long improvisation, and Eddie retold this story on this podcast and said, and and, and Melda came out with, oh, God, we're so excited. It's been years since I've got the flaps out. And I just literally... We all just fell about laughing and got told to leave the room and things like that. So Eddie Marzan's one of the funniest eccentric and brilliant actors to be on set with as is the brilliant Imelda Staunton I mean we spoke about Des when it's tough subject matter a lot of the I mean that was about a backstreet abortionist a lot of the time when it's tough subject matter like that you kind of have the most laughs just to keep you going and have that levity but um, yeah I've been blessed to work with amazing actors over the years so many mate and just to end it on that note that film is so difficult but so important and so powerful to really understand what women had to go through for so long you yeah. know they're either being forced in high society to be made to feel just disgusting uh, almost for the pleasure of these perverted doctors or your other option is you've got to go and as you say get this kind of homemade back alley abortion job they're your options and it just it really puts it into perspective you know like what women have had to endure you know, historically in this country and all around the world. And I think to, to address that in such a way in that film was, it's just an incredible film, isn't it? And we're so well yeah, done. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the word genius is always thrown about, but I would definitely um, throw that at Mike Lee because he's, he's, he's a phenomenal filmmaker. And the thing I love about Mike, because he's a huge hero of mine and I owe a huge debt of gratitude for the career that I've had because I did back-to-back films of him very early on is that he hasn't compromised, you know. Even when Hollywood came knocking, he's stuck to his guns and he's a true artist because he wants to tell his own vision. And I think um, all power for him for doing that. But he just hit it out of the park with Vera Drake. It was a phenomenal success for him with an amazing performance from Imelda Staunton. And I just feel blessed. I was, you know, as a young actor, to be part of that film was was a real sort of um, highlight for me, yeah. Yeah, must have set the tone for everything that followed as well and got you off to a nice start, I mean, right? really If was, that's like it, your post-grad I mean, school is on set with him for two projects back-to-back, like, yeah, I mean, as good I've as it gets, isn't it? Acting teachers at RADA, but to do to have back-to-back films with Mike because his process is so unique to him, I think any actor that goes through that, it, it definitely makes you a better actor by the end of it because he entrenches you in the truth of the character and no stone is left unturned in the pursuit of the truthfulness and 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 and, and giving a fully fledged three dimensional performance, you know, you absolutely saturate yourself 
in that world. And that particular film was, you know, the ni- early 1950s, Backstreet Abortionist and all the rest of it. And um, I mean, it was a difficult, it was a strange film because I had six months rehearsal and for like five and a half months of that, I had no idea that my mum in it was a Backstreet Abortionist. Oh, wow. So I do, I, yeah, yeah, all of that was, because you only ever know what your character knows. So I was doing hours and hours and months and months of improvisation in this family with Phil Davis and Alex Kelly, who played my sister, and I thought, I've got no narrative. Like, I've got no, am I going to be cut out of this? And I do remember having this sort of wobble with him and saying, look, I mean, I, I, I haven't done anything of any significance, really, in terms of plot. And he went, don't worry, just just keep going with it. And now I mentioned that 15-hour improvisation. That's when the pack of cards just crumbled and all of this secret came out. But um, it was, to this date, it's, to this day, it's the most amazing out-of-body uh, acting experience I went through, that 15-hour thing. It was like being in a trance. Do you understand what I mean? It's like, Absolutely, it was, it's yeah. Like, it was like... Um, the, for the entire time that she was taken away to this other police station, this other wing of this disused hospital, she was being interrogated for that entire like, hour and hour after hour. We were still in character in the flat, constantly smoking woodbine. And then eventually Phil Davis came back and sat us down and said she's been helping young girls out. And it was like a physical, like, I can only describe it as my stomach falling away. And then you, you're not acting, are you? That is real. You're just reacting. No, no, exactly. And then when you come to eventually film it in the final uh, shooting schedule, you know, you have all of that memory and all of those, that experience to draw upon. I think that's why it gets such sort of um, richness in the performances, particularly in Vera Drake. I think his particular method and the way he approaches things was brilliantly realised in that in that film. Um but you get it even in the period stuff. You think of Mr. Turner and and uh, Topsy Turvy and all that stuff. It, it, it's just an it's just a wonderful, um, amazing experience to go on. Well, it's been an amazing twenty years, mate, and I want to thank you for sharing, you know, some of your stories and your time with me again. <laughs> and <laughs> dare, I, dare I say it? I think this one was. I think it was better. I think it was the better of the two. I was a good. bit. I was a bit nervous. I was like, shit. If we do it again and it's not as good as the first, yeah. Um, so I hope that you. Agree. you I hope do, you agree. <laughs> whatever you do, don't leave your laptop on the train, mate. Do me a favour. I'm not even, doing this again. I'm not even catching them again. <laughs> That's it. Um, Danny, thank you so much, mate. All the best with everything. And um, one day, me, you, Simon, and Grant from Feeder are going to go have a beer in London. And um, yeah. Oh, I look forward to that. Have a real real life chat. Thank you so much, mate. Cheers, mate. All the best. Cheers, Danny. See you in a bit, mate. Bye-bye. Cruel, cruel world must I go I've been living too fast And I've been living too wrong Cruel, cruel world, I'm gone 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 